I am beyond excited to be talking to Dr. BJ Miller, a thought leader in the subject of serious illness, end of life issues and palliative care. BJ is dedicated to moving healthcare towards a more human-centered approach and he co-founded Metal Health, a company which aims to provide holistic consultations to patients or caregivers navigating the practical, emotional and existential issues that can arise with serious illness or disability. His 2015 TED talk, What Matters in the End, has been watched over 14 million times. BJ has been the subject of so many interviews, including Oprah Winfrey, The New York Times, Goop, and many others. I was so delighted to have some time with BJ, and amongst the richness of our conversation, we talked about the complexity of humans, how to honour our grief, how to feel our feelings, and to recognise what bliss is. And I think this is where it's, we need to be talking with each other. We need to be, I think one way to do this is to make sure to hold the pain and to, you know, grief can help us do this. If we can accept that there's been loss and there's pain, just as you described, if we're smart, we'll let ourselves grieve that. And that will give us time and space to transition, to let ourselves get used to what's gone and, and to see, to look creatively to life ahead with fresh eyes, with different eyes. But to do that, we have to let ourselves feel all of these things. And we're not so good at or prepared to feel things. Implied here is all sorts of lack of control. And boy, humans want to, we really want to control our existence. And I'm not sure how many of us are prepared to realize just how little control we have or what a folly our control is or how much pain it actually causes. As ever, I would love if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast as it really helps others to find it. I wanted to start really because I'd, I'd seen something on Twitter that you'd written and it was about the reasons why you started your organisation, Metal Health. And mm -hmm. um, there were three really good points that I just wanted to just ask you about them. And the first one was um, you said that there was no such thing as independence and that illness should be a source of connection, not isolation. And I thought that was really beautiful. So I just wanted mm. to you know, ask you to expand a little bit more on that. Yeah, turn the messaging we get on the, on its ear that, I mean, it feels very lonely to be sick sometimes and it feels like no one understands. And you look around in our society and on our media and, you know, it's all about some version, idealized version of health and aesthetics and it's just so unrealistic and ends up shaming people for for doing things that are natural, like being sick or dying, you know, and uh, it's such a shame because I see a lot of people who not only have to deal with the difficulties of illness or end of life stuff, but then they have to, the way we're kind of handling it all makes them feel, you know, like they should be embarrassed or like they're failing or something like that, which is just such a, it makes me so sad. I mean, you know, why do we shame each other and ourselves for doing things that are completely natural or completely outside of our control? So, in, in fact, you kind of start looking at it and suffering whatever of any stripe, illness or otherwise, that is a natural human experience. And it is kind of when you realize how much you need others and how much uh, we rely on one another and how much and how no one does any, any of this alone. So it's, it's those, it's, it's my, I have found myself feeling most vulnerable and therefore most connected when I'm you know, under the weather, essentially. 
And what a beautiful potential that is. Uh, what a beautiful thing if we could see it as a point of connection rather than something that drives a wedge between us. Mm-hmm. Golly, what a better world we'd have. So, yeah, and it should be that way. It could be that way. There's nothing preventing it from being that way. So it's fun to talk about it and try to get people, you know, thinking and feeling and recognizing vulnerability in themselves and others. Um, that's not a, that's not weakness. That's the opposite of weakness. That's, that's where our strength comes and that's where our connections come. And anyway, I'll start repeating myself, but yeah, there's, there's this beautiful potential around illness, um, that we unfortunately squash, but a lot of times when people get into those shoes, they feel there's sort of a breakdown that happens. And at the bottom of that, the bottom of that barrel is, is a real raw humanity. Um, and something that we all get to touch at some point in our life may not be comfortable, but it is, it can be beautiful. Are we scared to be what it means to be fully human? Mm. I think so. For some reason, I don't know why, because that's where so much of the wonder is, but yeah, one reason or another, and I doubt it's just modern life. Modern life has a lot to say about it. We've, you know, strategically alienated ourselves from nature, leveraged ourselves, hedged against nature, <clears throat> created increasingly synthetic worlds where we think we can sort of slice life up and keep out the hard stuff and welcome in only the easier good stuff. I mean, all that that is certainly on steroids in the modern world, but there's probably something very human about this too that that's older. Um I don't know that for sure, but I would imagine that humans have been running away from illness uh, for a long time or running away from their nature for a long time, as though maybe this is part of our nature, this weird, we're such a strange species. And it may be that we are different because we hold ourselves out to be different. And somehow that compels us through through the world. I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't pretend to know, but it is a phenomenon that... Um, needs to be kind of turned on its ear, lest we all just be way more miserable than we need to be. Mm. And there's something in the, you know, just what you were saying about that connecting through that suffering that, and and if we were more connected through that suffering, there would people would be more compassionate as well. You right. know, there would be this compassion that right. people seem to lack or are scared to be compassionate, perhaps. Yeah. It seems like, you know, if it's superstition, like if we somehow acknowledge these connections between us, acknowledge the beauty or importance of sort of simple kindness, maybe it just upends our whole way of seeing ourselves or something is uncomfortable about it. Or we feel like maybe if we start crying, we'll never stop. Or, you know, I, I don't, I don't know why, but there is, I suppose, I suppose if you just follow compassion, I mean, the, the word means suffering with and who wants to suffer. So maybe if I feel compassionate for you, well, then I've got to suffer with you and for you or something. You know, maybe there's this um, ill-conceived notion of compassion that means that, that pulls us into misery that we don't think we need to go through or something. And, and that may be true, but to some degree, but boy, I don't know how people make it this far into life without some relationship to pain besides denial because um, mm. again that's where so much of the connection is that's where so much of the shared experiences i mean like you and i have just met you know i can tell you we have a zillion things in common by virtue of <clears throat> being human and dealing with things that are outside our control and having to deal with being mortal i mean right out of the shoots we have so much in common and maybe that's 
Maybe that's a threat to some people. We're always trying to distinguish ourselves, hold ourselves up and out, see ourselves as different, separate ourselves. And whatever the source of that compulsion is, it's, it, it, it is a big, it's the way I see it, a big, big problem. Um, life could be so much sweeter if we kind of leaned into that compassion rather than ran away from it. I mean, I think one thing that's kind of, uh, you know, like I say, I don't have all the answers on this stuff, but you just sort of observations. And I think a lot of people misunderstand compassion. Like if I feel something, you know, there may, there's like something between being and doing like, you know, all that I've ever really needed from someone when I'm down is someone to feel with me, just to share that space for a second, help me not feel alone, you know? But I think sometimes people misread that as like, there's something they need to do or fix. And so if I feel compassion for you, if I walk by someone who's homeless and I let myself feel for that person, well, then I've got to go do something about it. So I got to fix it or make it better. We don't need to make that leap. It's enough to actually just feel for another human being. I mean, just do that. And there's endless, endless room for feelings. There's not endless room for doing something about it all the time. But I wish we would let ourselves at least feel feel for one another and go from there. Mm. Wow. Are we done now? It's <laughs> <was> really powerful. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I just want to pick up on the next thing that I thought was really beautiful that you said, that you said we are multi-dimensional beings and so should our care. Just that notion that, we're, you know, yes, we are all different and that care should be adaptable to those differences and the multifacetedness of, you know, yeah. humanity. Yeah, we're such complex critters and that's beautiful. It's amazing. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to see ourselves, but we're certainly not just our physical sensations. I mean, there's, there's an emotional world that's very rich in the psychology that runs with it. And there's this, if you like spirituality and ways that we are connected to each other and to the universe, um, you know, existential, we are meaning making critters. We're always looking for, to make meaning of experience. And somehow if we can find meaning in it, we can tolerate it. Mm. Um, so yeah and then we're creative critters you know every day is sort of an improv I, I like to think of daily life as this great teacher and also as a as a creative enterprise i mean just getting through the day is a creative enterprise you're constantly bobbing and weaving and moving with new information and shifting and redirecting and even if it feels sort of humdrum one day to the next if you back up a little bit and something i see at the end of life is you know, we kind of get into, we get inured to life's majesty with our daily kind of droning on and stuff. But if you step back from it, or you can feel it slipping out of your hands at the end of life, you can kind of quickly retune into just how outrageously creative life is all the time. Uh, and I like that connection because I like, I want to feel creative. That's a lovely thought but it's just true too I, I so anyway yes we humans are complex critters i mean look at us you you know why what a weird piece of nature that we have to create clothing for ourselves to warm so we have to create shelter we're we're a very weak species compared to my dog we if you throw me out in the woods and my dog out in the woods i mean guess who will win yeah but we do have this potential with our minds to generate things that weren't otherwise here on the planet to house ourselves, to feed ourselves, and not just in a, a rote kind of way. This is where humans get really creative. I love thinking about this. So 
yeah, what a bummer. We have to feed ourselves every day to live. We kind of turned that on our ear and we, we explored cuisine and we love food. It's not that we have to eat, we get to eat. You know, similarly, we need shelter. Uh, so we've divined architecture and we've created these outrageous spaces for ourselves. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's just outrageous. What a wild animal we are. Uh, so yes, all that needs to be celebrated, acknowledged, intended to you know, much more so than just, do we have a pulse or not? Uh, the sort of medical reductive lens of just being physiology that does not nearly do the human enterprise uh, justice. Um, so if we're going to care for each other, and if we're not going to hate ourselves for being sick, well, if we could turn some of that creativity to this juncture, this phase of life, well, then maybe we wouldn't be so afraid of it. Maybe we wouldn't be running away from it. If we mm -hmm. brought some beauty to this whole mix. Um, so that's one of my hopes. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it makes so much sense when I hear you say it, because, you know, life is so complex. We are so complex. We, we are made up of so many different things. And I think the idea that we die in this sort of very odd way, this sort of not really thought about way that, you yeah. know, we, we, I mean, obviously it's people are much more interested in the way that we're dying now, but it's still been the same for many years and it's like why is that so uncreative yeah. at the end of life why is it still like this it it really boggles my mind I, I it's so yeah I I think you know if I trace back there's sort of a design flaw in the way we think about aging and death um because we alienate it we therefore don't give it any attention we don't give it attention we don't give it the full force of our humanity our creative enterprise we don't because we're not we don't want to look at it so um even for and, and we forget that we all go through it so we're you know it we're we're hanging ourselves on this you know it it one of the things i love about this work is even as i work with patients and families other people i realize i am i'm certainly working on myself i'm we share the same condition so one thing I love about my job is it's selfish, selfless, it kind of loses its meaning. It's all, this is, we're tending to these experiences that we all share and therefore we're included in that. I, I do think, I was gonna say like, I think the design flaw is somewhere along the way, we, especially in the West, decided that death and life were at odds. You know, that death, death robs life, you know, um implying that well gosh we should or could live forever and just kind of keep going of course that doesn't make you start following that reasoning out it doesn't work very well and life needs death um and they are of a piece you don't get one without the other um so the thing that you know one way to maybe to start reorienting our species is to just start with this sort of a, a field of view a, a rain a, a sense of reality that is more comprehensive that includes all our experiences so we're not at odds with ourselves including death and if we can find a way to link death and life well then i think it'll start getting our attention and we won't hate it so much we'll see it as part of the deal and then once you're in there looking at mortality well you start realizing it does many things for you for you uh it does it it sort of it gives meaning meaning you know if you live forever there would be no significance of your choices and it wouldn't mean anything that you and i are spending time together right now there would be no significance to it mm. the fact is that time is finite so that when we choose to spend an hour together that's what gives it something powerful makes it precious makes it lovable 
you know, um, and also by the time a lot of people find their way to the end of their own lives, many people I work with, they're not, not only are they no longer very afraid of it, they're actually desiring it, ready for it, wanting it almost. There is a human somewhere in us, there's also a craving for our death too. So anyway, we're way more interesting than we treat ourselves. Way, death is way more fascinating, way less scary, I think, than we tend to imagine because we don't imagine it. We don't lend our imagination to this piece of life. Hmm. Maybe that's changing. It makes me, you know, that relationship to aging and death feels very immature. And so maybe as a species as, and societies, we are coming around this bend and opening ourselves up to a bigger frame of reality and therefore more fascination, more wonder, you know, more creative energy. We'll, we'll see. That's, that's my hope. That's the goal here, I think. And I think given how sophisticated we think we are, to imagine that death isn't something that is part of our lives that we're trying to run away from, that we're trying to deny, it just seems mm -hmm. really, in, it's insane when you really look at it, like just in this yeah. conversation. It sounds yeah. crazy, doesn't it? It is a little bit crazy. I mean, it's, I mean, I, it is, yes, it is a little bit crazy, <laughs> um, especially with so much evidence. I mean, you look around, you start tuning into death's relationship to life, especially walking in the woods. You, death is just everywhere. It's all part of a piece. You know, it's not separate from, it's all over the place, mm -hmm. including in us, things that we lose, relationships that go by the wayside, uh, roles, our sense of self can change over time, which means something has to die in us, parts of ourselves, relationships. All these are little deaths and yet we don't we don't give them that respect somehow but so i think we're practicing our deaths more often than we realize and therefore we're probably better at it than we realize or could be better at it than we realize if we dared to look at ourselves i mean i think but i was going to say too i mean i think it's also fair to let us or important to let ourselves off the hook we are yeah, we have a nervous system that is wired to run away from or fight anything that threatens our existence. That is, there's a, there's a compulsion in us that is not our fault. That is a reflex, mm. you know, so it, it, fair enough. And, and there's also sort of a sense of superstition that word may be pejorative because I think there's some truth to it. You know, like if you uh, dwell on your pain, you will feel more pain. You know, to some degree, if you dwell on mortality, then you might get stuck in just the fact that life ends, not the fact that life keeps going too. So, you know, there is something about not giving it air, not giving it space, at least in the short term, does allow us to function. You know, denial is a very useful thing. It allows us to get out of bed. I mean, imagine if you had to keep all of life's fragility and all of life's potential pain in, in mind all the time. You know, if you had to be ever present with your full reality all the time, I mean, it'd be hard to imagine getting anything done or functioning at all. So, so we humans narrow our focus. We, we narrow our aperture of our lens so that we can deal with it. We reduce life so that it becomes predictable and knowable and less terrifying. Mm. So that makes sense. That's fine. I'm just, you know, I think when you get down to the tactics of it, I'm, I don't want to shame any of this, including denial. It's just more like, can we be aware of our denial and use it uh, judiciously and cautiously and make sure, you know, daily or near daily to pull back on the lens and, and, and remind ourselves that we're the ones reducing life's experiences. It, life is huge. We're the ones who make it small. And if we just stay aware of that, 
um, I think we'll be in a lot better place. I don't think we're going to get to a place where denial is out of our system or fear is out of our system. It's more like we need to metabolize those and rope them in so that we can work with them and not just be afraid, not just be in denial. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It makes sense. And I think it's just really interesting going back to the third thing that you've mentioned, which I, which I picked out, which is getting sick, dying is normal. That sort of normality of this experience that yes, we can still be in denial of it. Death doesn't pick and choose what dies. Death, death doesn't, you know, there's no, it doesn't just take part of this that it likes and somehow, you know, there's, it's not picking and choosing. Mm. Uh, it's way more inclusive you know and there's something very beautiful about that we should take note um if death accepts us in in this way you can't fail to die you can't fail at it. it's one of the things in life you can't you can't really <laughs> screw up it's such, such a lovely the pressure's off you're gonna it's gonna happen no matter what your body knows we'll figure out how to die um mm. so there's something lovely about that it takes the pressure off like i say and that sort of total inclusiveness you know if death if everything must go well then Let's use everything we have, including our denial, including our fears, but just use them wisely, thoughtfully, carefully. Um, like I say, to be more than just afraid or more than just in denial. I, I, uh, I think we, if we started by with this normalizing piece, yes, acknowledging death as part of life, like you're doing, like we're doing. Um, but from there, acknowledging that if everything's got to go and nature is totally efficient, everything is, see, everything is useful, having everything has its role both outside of ourselves and inside of ourselves everything every thought every feeling actually has a place mm. every so feel it love it it's gonna go so feel it feel it whatever it is while you can good you know get drop the adjectives of good bad better worse just does it exist if it exists you know somehow relish it if you can if you can't change it to make it work for you well i think we're left to just love it you know, not, not a simple, pretty love, but a big, complex, difficult love that forces us always to push back on the walls that reduce it, push back in the walls. If anything's being left out, any part of you is being left out, any person's being left out, well, then it's not right yet. We haven't, we haven't found it yet. Death, death keeps teaching us that. Mm. In terms of your own relationships, you know, romantically or otherwise, and the people that are close to you, has this perhaps working in this field how has that changed the perspective of those relationships and those connections that you have yeah that's a great question too i you know there's a balancing act in all of this of you know i i think letting go is a very important skill but so is hanging on you know and if i were just constantly letting go of everything all the time there would be no you know if there was just no friction in my I, I, I'm not sure that's a life that I'd really want. I mean, I, I would be, that's sort of, I don't, I don't see life as such a passive enterprise. You know, I think there's something about our individual sort of, you know, neurotic idiosyncrasies that are lovely. I mean, try having a personality without neuroses. You know, I think there's something, there's something really brilliant about our little peccadillos and our little uh, insecurities and all the things that make us little tick and uh, push us through the world. So yes, it has affected my relationships. And I would say it does two things in, in short, uh, and probably many others, but it, you know, like I was saying earlier, a moment ago, how 
the sort of total inclusivity of, of the subject is, is really telling for us. So similarly, I think it's not, anytime you come across these either or scenarios or either letting go or hanging on, that's what I was starting to say, you know, it's probably inaccurate. That's probably, it's, there should be room for both. Um, why we are complex people. I can both let go and I can hang on. So in some ways, the poignancy that death instills in life really makes me want to hold on to it, including my relationships, like we were talking about. If we rely on each other, if we need each other, if these connections are so much what humanity is about, well, then I'm all the more primed to love my relationships. They're so precious, they're so powerful. You mean like, you know, I just love this thought, like, it, you know, if two, for two people to be in the same place on the same planet at the same time, that is an outrageous like what an amazing thing to have in common. Like that is, that is uh, what a, an amazing connection. And I just, I feel it all the time. But if I stopped at that, I would just be so terrified to lose any of it because it's so great, because it's so amazing. So, the, so one step is appreciating it for what it is. And then that leads you to the second step of, you know, holding it lightly. Like, so I love my relationships very, very much, all the more so. Death really helps me appreciate them. And death also helps me uh, realize that I can't clutch to them forever. I, can't, I have to hold things lightly. They will come, they will go. So to answer your question, I, it has helped me take, take up this sort of dynamic where I'm both hanging on and letting go all the time. And sometimes, frankly, in my world of my human relationships, um, I'm a little out of step sometimes, a lot of people. I'm either letting go a little bit too much on the letting go, holding it a little too lightly sometimes for some people's taste, or I'm hanging on too tightly for some people's taste. So, um, you know, it's funny. My By virtue of the conversation we're having, by focusing attention in this way, because the backdrop of this conversation is is not you know this is not how society views this, views this subject this is not most people aren't walking around thinking about these things all the time and by virtue of because i am a lot of time it does pull me out of the flow of daily life and some by some measure mm -hmm. and so my relationships have uh, are intense and have blossomed beautifully with all this work and they've been filled with a lot of pain because sometimes I've had the feeling that someone wants me to hang on a little tighter than I do. Someone doesn't want me to let let them go so quite so fluidly. Um, and so I have felt that. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's a there's a quick quick window into sort of the struggles of uh, of living with these realizations and how it does pull us out of step with the way society is wired. And sometimes that feels makes us enterprise feel all the more lonely, um, even though we're talking about connections that we all share. If we're the only ones looking at those connections in a certain way, then it can still feel very lonely. So that is not to say that I am lonely. It's just to say that my relationships are held slightly differently. And sometimes that's beautiful. And sometimes that's a little extra painful. Yeah, I kept thinking as you were talking, it's almost like finding the sweet spot in between, yeah. <laughs> in between yeah. those, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a points in tension and we move around held suspended in these little points of tension. And sometimes we're a little one side of the spectrum and sometimes we're on the other. Um, but yeah, that tension, I feel that tension. And I think it's one of the things that keeps us together, that holds us together, these points of tension.
Yeah. It's that thing, isn't it? When you're thinking about death, you're thinking about life. And so, Mm -hmm. and then it gets your brain going about how amazing life is and how complicated it is. And with all the trauma and all the good stuff, it's, you know, that's what makes up humanity, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Right So it's really interesting just hearing you saying that because I'm thinking, yeah, it's really true. It is so interesting how to un- un- unwashed eyes the subject does sound like it should be brutally hard and uh depressing you know, but it so rarely stays depressing for very long because of this big big picture that it instills and and pretty quickly you do end up talking any talk of death pretty much pretty quickly becomes talk of life um and loss becomes ta- some talk of gain you know these things bag this fuller picture and that includes pain sure but also includes lots of joy and Mm. just giddiness sometimes i don't know if you watched the oscars recently the last oscars in february there was a there's a guy there was a guy called um tyler perry and he was Mm -hmm. talking about his um philanthropy work that he does and he was saying Mm. that it was really beautiful i just it's just always stuck with me in terms of i mean i'm a doula end of life doula Mm -hmm. and um he said, you know, the thing that I always think is about meeting someone at their humanity. And I think that's, it sounds like that's what you're doing with your work, that you're meeting someone at their humanity, rather than thinking about what death should look like. It's mm-hmm. from one human to another. And right on. I think that's really I thought that was really profound when he said that. I agree with that. I mean, whether it's medicine or any any role that we might take on, if we get underneath our roles or the hats we're wearing, like start there, start at that human to human connection and, and layer on our professional stuff on top of that or anything else we need to find. But if you start there, if you build from that base connection, if that's in place and all sorts of things become possible. Um, but if you don't, if you start sidestep that human to human piece, you can also quickly get in trouble and you can quickly be unhelpful and you can quickly just make things harder for everybody. Um, but it does take a moment. It takes a little practice for us to see each other as people, not see each other as means to some end or strategic pieces on a chessboard or all the things that professional overlays can bring into the mix. We're always strategizing with our relationships. Ugh. It's really, it drives me bonkers. I hate that. And I, I do not like that energy. Mm. At least I don't like that energy until the human to human connections in place. And then we can strategize about what we want to do and what we want from each other. Fine. But if you get, if that, if that connection's not there, trouble ensues. And if that connection is there, beauty ensues, no matter, kind of, no matter what the outcome. More from BJ in a minute when we talk about how to recognise bliss, the use of psychedelics and how to make the best use of palliative care for our loved ones. The charity we are supporting in this episode is Papyrus for the Prevention of Young Suicide, which was founded in 1997 by a group of bereaved parents who had each lost a child to suicide. Suicide is the biggest killer of young people aged 35 and under in the UK and Papyrus works to support, equip and engage with communities across the UK through training, awareness raising and policy change to reduce the number of young suicides and to enable life. To find out more or to donate, please visit papyrus-uk.org 
and all the details will be online on our website. Now back to BJ. I've, I've often heard you describe um, at the end of life, people have a sort of opening or a shift. And I wanted to ask what you meant by that. Mm. What, what, what are those shifts and openings that you've witnessed? Well, I think it's, there's like this truthfulness that comes into play. You just can't, you know, the fact of death and the sort of, it, it just, the way, the way it can break us down, our constructed selves, our the person who is identified by their achievements and by their ability to run a marathon or do this or that, or, you know, those are cool things. That's beautiful, but it's not the same thing as yourself. Um, and so you kind of have to get underneath all the shellac of life, the accomplishments, the goals, the seeking an illness and end of life can really break you down. It can be a very, uh, uh, dismembering kind of experience, but in a way, if you hang in there, it, what it does is sort of just, it's almost like it blows out your carburetors. It, it, it kind of has a way of getting underneath to something much more durable, which is this sort of human piece. Um, that has nothing to do with, you know, how well we did on a test or how well we performed at anything, you know? So, so I see folks at the end of life, there's a, if they can hang in there through their grief as they feel loss after loss after loss, well, what's waiting for them is this place where, they don't need to be good or bad at anything. They don't need to achieve something to belong. They don't need to be productive to feel like they're part of society. There's this, just this basic enterprise of being alive. And if you get down there, again, it can be painful getting there, um, but shedding so many layers. But once you're there, you kind of see just how much, you know, uh, this sort of very basic view of life where we all are, every living thing is in the same shared place. We're all kind of connected and that can kind of crack you open. But at first you kind of have to discombobulate. And then once you're discombobulated, well, then you can kind of see clearly and recombobulate as you like. But so that's what I mean by that openness. It's sort of at the tail end of being broken down. But when you're, you know, there's still something of a person left after all that breaking down and that person belongs here in this world. That person is connected to everything that's ever lived. And therefore it's an expansive place and therefore it's an open place. Um, you know, if you realize there's room for your sorrows, for your failures too, you don't have to be embarrassed of those. You don't have to isolate from your, your own self that golly, it just, yeah. That that is a very, like I, I'm repeating myself, but a very beautiful, very open, especially if you've got support around you. Uh, if you've got loving people around you, going through through this with you, witnessing you as you break down. Oh man, such a such a precious zone is waiting for you. Yeah. Do you think it's possible in life to? break break it down like that to have that sort of shift i know people have crises and come mm -hmm. out the other side different people but mm -hmm. why does it ha only happen well not only but why can it happen in that way in death but not mm -hmm. as much in life well 
I think because we are, we keep alienating ourselves from these truths accidentally or otherwise. And so we're not in touch with this place that we're talking about now. You know, I do believe for, force is very helpful, you know, illness, all sorts of things that force impose themselves on you and break you down, whether you choose it or not. Um, but there's a, you know, I, I have to believe there's a way we can choose to see these things. You don't need to be like for me, you know, I'm a triple amputee and that that experience really shook me up and woke me up to a lot of things we're talking about now. Did I need to lose three limbs to get there? I mean, gosh, no. I'd sure like to think not. It was the thing that cracked me open. It just that was the variation on theme that came my way. But if we're really paying attention to ourselves, to our whole self, this thing that feels things for other people, you know, if we're really in touch with our true nature, if we're really paying attention to people around us, there is enough sorrow, suffering, there's enough evidence of lack of control in our own lives and those of others. There's enough evidence of feeling one another through our empathy. There's enough evidence of all this connection that I do believe we could feel our way to this place that we're talking about now. Uh, in some ways, it's a harder road than some event coming along and just smacking us so hard that all our constructs, all our conventions, all our ways of thinking are revealed as just made up stuff, you know, <laughs> that it's very useful. So it was very useful for me to lose three limbs. Did I need to? I, I, I'd hope not. I do think if we want to, we can choose this way of thinking and of feeling. Uh, it's, it's around us all the time. It's just a subtler voice. And until it's not, until it's really, really loud. But you got to have to tune into this subtler plane to, to get there. Or just wait to get really sick and that'll break you down fine. Yeah. Wow. So it's for me, it's it's it sort of sounds like it's who am I if mm -hmm. I'm not this and I'm not that? Yeah. Who are we? Yeah. Yep. Right. That kind of I'd love to rope that in. That sort of a that should be a daily question. That should be, you know. I mean, this is my hope for the pandemic, you know, is, you know, what you're, you're pointing to, I think the phrase we use in, in palliative care, you know, is an existential crisis, you know, like who, which is really a crisis of meaning. Who am I? Why me? Why this? What is, what is behind what's going on here? So we are here now having a global existential crisis. Um, if it weren't the pandemic, we've got uh, climate change to deal. We've got increasingly loud, screaming, you know, shared pain that's telling us, hey, you know, pay attention, pay attention. Um, my fear with the pandemic is that it's may soon, you know, maybe we'll be on the far side of it. And as humans go, uh, that we may just kind of careen back to this place where we were before the crisis, um, you know, mm -hmm. back to normal, that language, you're going to hear more and more about it. I mean, we're returning back to normal now. Um, and that, that is, that's a big, big shame. We have this big painful excuse to pay attention to life a little bit differently. We have this, we have been broken down a little mm -hmm. bit at least. True. Um, and the great news there is once you kind of deal with that pain is you get to reform, you get to recreate, you get to make a better world. Um, 
But if we don't pay attention to that pain a little bit longer, hold it a little bit longer to let it teach us what we didn't, what wasn't going so well before, what wasn't really, really working. Um, then we're going to, we're going to close this wound up too quickly and, and head back to this pre-wounded state, which is such a shame. I mean, what a shame. We just had to go through all this pain. Why not let it take us to this better, more beautiful place? But I don't know that we're going to do that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, people's lives have changed so much. And, and if you think about the job losses, you know, all the roles that we, you know, adhere to that we think make who we are, it's exactly mm -hmm. that, that's all been lost mostly in the last sort of year and a half yeah. and yep i think people are having these existential crises because of the pandemic has for mm -hmm. like you were saying before has been forced upon them mm -hmm. and it's a forced change which has made people go actually i've made a better change in my life i've made mm -hmm. these you know i'm living better i'm experiencing life better and we're just in that sort of cusp of it can it could go either way couldn't it mm -hmm, people are fearful mm -hmm. it's like it's like opening up a new door to a different reality and mm -hmm. do people want it's like you know it's like do people want that reality right. are they prepared to accept that new reality there is no normal there was no normal and yeah. we can't go back to this illusion of yeah what was normal yep i i and yet you know and I think this is where it's, we need to be talking with each other. We need to be, I think one way to do this is to make sure to hold the pain and to, you know, grief can help us do this. If we can, if we can accept that there's been loss and there's pain, just as you described, well, then we can, if we're smart, we'll let ourselves grieve that. And that will give us time and space uh, to transition to let ourselves get used to what's gone and, and to see, to look creatively to life ahead with fresh eyes, with different eyes. But to do that, we have to let ourselves feel all of these things. And we're not so good at or prepared to feel things. Implied here is all sorts of lack of control. And boy, humans want to, we really want to control our existence. And I'm not sure how many of us are prepared to realize just how little control we have or what a folly our control is or how much pain it actually causes. So I'm not sold that we as a society are ready to go through that door, as you described, but I sure hope so. I sure wish we would. Um, this is, I guess, a grand excuse to do so. I mean, that's what I think these dramatic experiences do for us. They give us basically an excuse to change. They yeah. give us an excuse to see the, the world in a bigger way and therefore an excuse to change it. Um, you know, if I'm having a private existential crisis and society isn't in tune with the way I'm feeling. Well, it's harder to change some things, but now, right now we have this shared zone where we, you know, we, we have this, we have this grand excuse, whether we take it or not. I, I don't, I don't know. And I suppose many of us will in each of, in our ways. And it's not a, it's not a either or situation. I'm sure a lot of us will make changes, some small, some big, whether we, parlay that into our institutions and the things that create the, our, the, the sort of the constructed environment that we build and share. Uh, if it doesn't make its way to that level, then we'll be at best, we'll have this sort of a private awakening. Um, mm -hmm. Those private awakenings 
that just revs up the contrast between the word, the state you're in and the state the rest of the world's in. And that becomes even more alienating. And I watch this happen with families. They're so tenderized by a grief experience. They are so primed to see the world in a bigger, more beautiful, more connected way. But bit by bit, they go back out into society and the cues around them are so pull, so strong that yank them out of that tender place. And, the, mm. and it's very easy to kind of go back to this sort of scarred down, numbed out, you know, short-sighted way, because that's what everyone else around you is doing. Um, mm. So it really takes sort of an activism to hold this door open a little while longer until we can, so we can encourage each other and ourselves to step through it into all sorts of unknowns into, you know, this relationship to unknown is very tricky. A lot of us don't like it very much. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for our control mechanisms. So anyway, going on and gone again, but yeah, I, this is why I'm glad to have conversations with you like this. I think we need to encourage each other uh, and point out the impossibility of going backwards and the craziness of wanting to, and therefore the sort of beauty of, of daring to look at this world a little different, daring to do different going forward. We need to encourage each other right now. I think we need to give ourselves a bit more credit to say, actually, we have been living with this unknown for now quite a long time and we have adapted. Yes. You know, we're, it's, not, it, it's horrendous for the people that have lost people close to them and, and, and not being able to say goodbye in a, in a, in a proper way. That's been very difficult for so many, but you know, this is going to keep happening and yeah. this is probably going to go on for a while. So yeah. it's here to stay, isn't it really this situation? So it is. And even if, even if it were to disappear, evaporate, we've got all sorts of other big issues waiting for us and there'll be a next pandemic and there's all sorts. Yes. I mean, right on. And your point is something really important as we're acting much, we are all being much more adaptive than maybe we realize. I mean, I think part of it is us changing the locus of our pride to mm. say, gosh, to, to focus on where we have changed and how we have uh, um, adapted. Ad adapted, you know, that, that is, let's be proud of that. Um, let's call attention to that because we're all doing it, whether we give ourselves credit for it or not. It's a big, it's a big conversation, isn't it? But I think it's really important just to acknowledge that, you know, we're all sitting in a, in a big grief zone at the moment, I think, aren't mm -hmm. we? We probably yeah. don't even realize it. A lot of right. people. I, I think that's true. And we have shortchanged grief for a long time in the West, you know, especially in the States. I don't know how it is in the UK. We don't, oh, you know, we haven't ritualized it. We've diminished it. We've caught a pathologized it. We give ourselves a, maybe a couple of weeks to feel sad. And then you're supposed to just get back on that old horse. And it's just crazy. I mean, it's just not possible. And nor would we want it to be possible. That's where we cut ourselves off from all sorts of things unnecessarily. So we're not very good at grief. I like to say, I mean, if, if I had to pick one muscle to exercise right now, it would be grief. I think that's the way forward. Um, mm. That will open the door in all sorts of ways. If we can get ourselves to let ourselves grieve and honor that, that's, that's the next big step. I'm not sure. So, so getting tactical, I think right now we need to really acknowledge that grief, just like you just did. Hmm. I had a couple of um, practical questions, actually, really for the uh -huh. listeners. And I guess it's quite, a, well, it seems like quite a simple question uh, was how can we be an advocate for someone we love and how can we make the best use of palliative care? Well, one is, uh, I mean, for people to understand that palliative care 
I don't know how in the UK it may be different, but in the States, palliative care, we, we really struggle around the messaging of palliative care. Palliative care keeps, keeps getting conflated with end of life care. And it's, you know, um, that is just relevant, you know, when death is near. And that's a shame. So, you know, part of this advocacy work at the systems level is for us to really realize that palliative care, there's a whole, there's a whole discipline, a whole service waiting for us with doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, this much more well-rounded team of people who are there for us to help us not suffer so much, to help us find lessons in life and to find meaning in life and to move forward more peacefully. So part of it is just acknowledging that palliative care, it's just simply the interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life. That's all it is. It's not, so it's relevant way sooner than most people think. So part of good advocating for well for someone is educating yourself as to what's possible, what's out there, what services exist. And palliative care is a big one. You know, if done well, palliative care can go right alongside, you know, curative attempts at treatment or intensive treatments. Um, some of my patients I've seen for 10, 11, 12 years, you know, they're nowhere near death, mm. but that's the exception around here. So part of the message, part of us is understanding that palliative care exists for us way sooner than the end of life. Um, I think also just acknowledging that our health system has severe limitations and you can't, if you ever could, you can no longer just sort of hand yourself over to the doctor and expect that they're going to somehow make everything better or advocate for you in a way that makes sense for you, or even know you well enough to advocate for you. Modern medicine just doesn't allow for that for all sorts of reasons that we talked too long about. But so part of being a good advocate is, is using medicine wisely, but not conf confusing the medical world with the whole world. So making sure to somehow advocate for their emotional well-being, their spiritual well-being, all the things besides just physiology. Speaking up, that may be speaking up at the doctor's appointment about other issues that haven't made its way to their way to the conversation that are nonetheless important that the doctor didn't ask about. Um, sometimes that's reaching outside the system to find help in neighbors and friends. Um, sometimes it's just making the point that needing help is normal, that we are dependent on each other all the time. There's no shame in that. So there's all sorts of ways that one can advocate for, uh, another person, but those are some ways. Mm. And it's really interesting actually just to pick up on something that you just said is just, and you mentioned it a couple of times, this word shame, you mm -hmm. know, that, that it's, that people feel shame to ask for help to, you know, they have shame. Mm -hmm. that there might be a burden mm -hmm. and i just think that's just i mean that's part of human nature to feel like that anyway to, it is. to feel that to ask for help is somehow shameful and but if you really love someone mm -hmm. and someone that person someone else asks you for help mm -hmm. then it's not a burden it's an act of love isn't it yeah yeah, absolutely. It is. And yeah, who's not a burden? We're all burdens. I mean, just that's, you know, we take, we, we need things, you know, so uh, yeah, fine. If you want to use, if we, if we want to sort of accept this burden piece, well, then we also have to accept that we're all burdens all the time. It's just a matter of degree. And there's some, and life is always a give and take. And there's some moments in life that we need, we can give more than we take. And sometimes we need to take more than we can give in that moment. And that's just, that's part of the deal too. That is normal. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't necessarily feel good, but it is real. Um, so in the States, one of the reasons why people want to hasten their own deaths is because they feel like such a burden. 
And I think that's in part an indictment of society, how we've rigged our society to see value in people only when they're productive, not just because they exist. Um, mm. And so we feel the fallout of that all the time. Gosh, that's so as so a cool. caregiver, you know, you can make, you can reorient uh, with a patient to see value in their existence beyond their productivity. That's a wonderful thing to do for another person. Thank you. I had a couple of other questions, actually. Um, it was for me, what does inclusivity look like in death care? If you're not white, straight, male, privileged, mm -hmm. what what can we do to change that narrative around that? Um, and obviously, you know, you've experienced that now living as someone with disability, but you started at that mm -hmm. sort of main, the main, in that main framework. Mm -hmm. I was curious because, um, you know, it's something that I'm always thinking about. How can we make this experience more? Because like you say, death is inclusive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, first of all, we start by opening our eyes to that fact and, and realizing getting outside of our own prejudices and our own biases. I mean, part by speaking of shame, I mean, bias is unavoidable. There is not a human being on the planet who's been alive for more than a week or two who doesn't have a bias just by virtue of their their experiences we have different experiences that pull us in different ways that highlight different parts of our nature you know and so here again you know the it's like fear or anything else we might want to get rid of the, the trick is to not get rid of it. we're not going to get rid of our bias the, the trick is to acknowledge our bias um yeah. that that sort of awareness is the key so part of the answer to the question is just continue to talk about this and keep pushing back on our language keep looking for where we're accidentally being reductive accidentally slicing up the world in ways that are unfair so that kind of awareness is key that's certainly a start um i think also i mean just in our field i mean healthcare and medical research has been part of the problem the way we've uh structured medical research now for a couple of generations has left out people of color has left out people with disabilities has often left out women has done much of the reducing um, there are all sorts of reasons for that but one is for us if we want part of the big way we understand the world around us is through our science uh, and through how we research and study life well going those sources and making sure to that they up their game that we in the medical world up our game and how we see life how we research it that will be a big that's a big sort of structural piece of this puzzle too um and i think that on an individual level is just daring to see ourselves in each other all the time daring to see this shared space that we've been talking about underneath everyone all the time uh, and reminding yourself anytime you feel separate from another human being or like their experience isn't relevant to you because they look different or because they, whatever it is, you know, again, that's just get better at each of us noting that's us reducing the reality. That's us putting in boundaries and limitations that aren't otherwise there. We're the ones creating that, those, uh, those separations. And so that sort of awareness can allow us to back up Every time we realize we're cutting someone out of the picture is to realize that we're doing that and back up and refashion it. We're, we, it's not, it's, we, the job is not done yet. So those are sort of some sort of structural and, and, and perspective ways to proceed. But also I think, you know, more tactically, I'd love to see more 
hospice houses built where these places where people can go and spend their final moments in life that are beautiful places, places you'd want to live, places you'd want to be. And then, then we can create an environment where space really is shared. These aren't theoretical things we're talking about. You can actually go into a place and see people of different colors, of different cultural backgrounds. I mean, the cultural overlay to end of life is fascinating. Mm. How different cultures have viewed this subject, what they do with it, how they play with it or whatever. It's just plain fascinating. So starting to welcome in these cultural overlays as points of fascination uh, and points of interest, you know, creating, creating environments where the, all those things can kind of play out under one roof. Um, that would just do, I think, the, the magic of, of the proof of our shared experience by sharing our experience. You know, so that's another way I think we could proceed and do a little bit differently. Mm, I love that idea. I know that you've personally had a lot of interest about psychedelics and mm-hmm. the use of them in end of life um, care and and also to treat anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. particularly those of um, MDMA and psilocybin. So I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you about that and just to get some idea. of Have you ever experienced it yourself? Oh yeah, yeah. I've definitely dabbled. I'm I'm very interested in these these altered states. Although I don't know which you sometimes you come in these altered states. Which which is the altered state? Our sort of daily <laughs> constructed life, or these places where some of these chemicals can help mm. sort of facilitate? Um, yeah. No, I think I'm very excited about the research going on around psychedelics. When it comes down to it, most people want to want to feel like they belong. You know, most people want to feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. Most people would be happy to get out of their brains and out of their thoughts if they only knew how. Our thoughts can be such a, our, our, our mentation can be such a prison of its own making. Mm. So um, like we were talking about earlier, how illness can discombobulate you. Well, psychedelics can discombobulate you too, in a way allow you to practice getting at the world underneath your thoughts getting at the world underneath your ego um, and seeing, seeing what is for what it is. And that's a, so anything that can facilitate that, that insight um, I'm all for it. And psychedelics are a piece of this puzzle. I mean, we'll see how the data goes, but so far the research is pretty stunning. They, these things form connections in and around us that, you know, in the medical world, we've had nothing like this. We don't, we don't have, you know, if you came to me with death anxiety, maybe I could talk you through some things, or maybe I could sedate you with some, you know, Valium or something, but I couldn't somehow foster or forge or catalyze a sense of connectivity with the universe that somehow made you feel less alone. Like that's not been happening in a medical office, but these chemicals have been around for a long time. Many of them, there's a lot for us to learn, but they do hold out a lot of promise to, to, kind of a controlled discombobulation so uh i'm all for it I, i'm mm. very excited about this potential me too It'd just be really good to see uh i mean where where are we at with that we're moving pretty quickly i mean all things considered relatively speaking in the, in the sort of research-based world it's moving pretty quickly in part because there's there's already a long history of research around psychedelics that kind of went fallow in the 70s for political reasons 60s and 70s for political reasons but there was a body of research to pick back up on. And besides our sort of Western medical research, there's, you know, a lot of these are, uh, have been, a lot of these substances have been used by indigenous folks for 
eons, you know, so this has been around a long time. We have more experience than we realize with them. Um, so, uh, I, so far, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years time, psilocybin is a medical therapeutic. It can be prescribed. Same with MDMA for PTSD, for anxiety, for death anxiety, specifically for addiction, for chronic pain, all sorts of stuff. We're just scratching the surface now, but my sense is it's coming pretty quickly in, in our lifetimes. I think they'll be able to prescribe some of these chemicals, whether we work out all the set and setting and the variables of integration. And it's not just a matter of taking the pill. That's a piece of the puzzle. Um, so whether we work out all the F, the stuff around the chemical itself, that's another question. Mm -hmm. But I do think from a research point of view, we are getting to the point where these, the, the substances are going to be more and more accessible more and more available and more normal. Yeah. Well, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? I wanted to ask you, what brings you bliss and mm. how could other people find theirs? I think that zone, I think we're in that zone all the time where we can't run away from it. We are part of it. It's, it's all the time. So I think part of it is a sensitization or an orientation to note the bliss happening all the time versus this idea that bliss is a special, special, rarefied, exotic zone that you can, if you can just find it, you can tap into this very particular exotic thing. No, I think it's actually, you bring love, you bring bliss to just about, you, you can, you can be the source of that stuff. Life is, is underneath our noses all, all the time. All of life's majesty is around us all the time in us around us all the time we are part of it we are part of nature um we are part of that 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 to me feels uh, i don't have a very brisk answer for your question but it has something to do what brings me bliss is when i get out of my own way and realize how much i'm a part of already not that i'm striving to become if i just achieve this or that then i'll belong then i'll deserve x y or z now that's just me holding myself hostage if i can just get sometimes it's a sunset or it's a view or sometimes it's a someone an act of kindness uh, sometimes it's nothing at all that just touches me into this this loving blissful place that we're a part of always all the time if we can just get out of our way oh that's a wonderful way to end that's mm. pretty powerful for what eight o'clock in the nine o'clock in the morning <laughs> <laughs> wow thank you so much i think that's wonderful and yeah. so 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 powerful there's a lot of stuff there to um, mm. unpack but thank you no thank you i'm really yeah. glad you're having these conversations in a public way so i'll keep at it if you will <laughs> thanks to bj for his time and such an enlightening conversation and if you'd like to find out more about his organization please go to metalhealth.com and i'll put the links on the doing death website 